The subject for the evening talk is a commentary on one of the poems of Milarepa and the uh, quotation is taken from uh, two volumes of uh, books of Milarepa's works called The Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa, which was uh, translated by a man named Chang some years ago. And it says uh, on the back here, by way of introduction to you, uh, the songs of Milarepa, the famous 11th century Tibetan Buddhist poet and saint, are a synthesis of lyric beauty and profound spiritual understanding. They form one of the great canons of Tibetan Buddhist literature, which still speaks with a poignant relevance to the contemporary mind. And the background to um, Milarepa was that he was born in Tibet, and at an early age his father died and his mother, as is somewhat traditional in parts of the East, then went to live with his late father's brother, his uncle, and spent uh, time with him. And in that, Milarepa had conflict, to say the least, with his uncle and went away from the family as a young man determined in a way to wreak some kind of revenge on his uncle through the learning, the study of black magic so that catastrophes would take place. He then regretted very much his uh, actions and went to see a man named Marpa who in time became his teacher and in the early period of, in a way, forming the relationship with Marpa, um, Milarepa was completely rejected by Marpa. And the, the account of this is, in a way, well known amongst people in the Mahayana tradition, amongst the Tibetan religious folklore over the century, being that Milarepa is so widely loved and revered and respected. And Milarepa was continually being rejected and told by uh, Marpa that uh, Marpa was quite unwilling to really embrace um, Milarepa as a student. And it was a very testing and challenging period for Milarepa. And Milarepa at times wasn't even allowed into the Dharma hall to listen to teachings and so forth. And this is a sustained and one-pointed determination of Milarepa, both to change inwardly, to be a student of Marpa, brought about a, um, a relationship, and, Mar and Milarepa then went for years into solitude, lived in caves, received uh, teachings, and, and through, through these years of leading uh, the life of a uh, 
a yogi, he set out and set down, wrote out these many very beautiful um, poems, um, seemingly countless numbers of them, which have been a source of inspiration and mystical insight for many generations of practitioners. And in this, in the local, in the early part of the book, which I've been reading, rereading uh, recently, uh, it says how when uh, Milarepa did leave the caves, how people just delighted in the villages and small townships to to see him, and his reputation began to spread, and as of course, as it has done so through the uh, centuries, and out of this rather vast assembly, so we say, of um, poems and the insights emerging forth out of them, I've just taken um, uh, one, and even um, in that one, uh, not the totality of it, as it runs into some pages, but the um, uh, but aspects of it which I think are worth uh, um, um, quoting or commenting on. And as one can appreciate, um, what I might pick out is not obviously what somebody else would uh, pick out. And you'll see why as I read. <coughs> So, Milarepa, in, and incidentally, in the period after Milarepa, in which he had two, uh, two foremost um, students, and uh, Fred was uh, just telling me a little bit about the biographical uh, background of Milarepa, had two foremost students, um, Rejungpa and Jempopa. And the, uh, the second one, just I mentioned, became the founder of the Kagyu lineage, which is one of the four major lineages of the Tibetan tradition. And he is the author of the Jeweled Ornament of Liberation, which is um, regarded within that tradition and lineage as a basic teaching, basic textbook towards the way of uh, liberation. And so out of the inspiration and the insights of Milarepa, who of course was very much inspired by Marpa, who was very much inspired by previous teachers and dating back to the Buddha and so forth, came in this long-standing lineage, which, has, which endeavours to maintain that, that spirit of uh, um, inquiry and uh, understanding. So, Milarepa, just writing this some um, eight centuries ago while living in the, in the caves in uh, Tibet, says, I am not a singer who wishes to display his art, but entreat me to sing and sing again. Today I will sing to you of the ultimate truth. Thunder, lightning and the clouds, arising as they do out of the sky, vanish and recede. The rainbow, fog and mist, arising as they do from the firmament, vanish and recede back. Honey, fruit and crops grow out of the earth, all vanish and recede back into it. Flowers, leaves and forests 
arising as they do out of the earth, vanish and return back into it once more. The ripple, the tide and the flux, arising as they do out of the great ocean, also vanish and return. Habitual thinking, clinging and desires, arising as they do from consciousness, all vanish and return. And if he knew not that all obstacles, all things which arise reveal the emptiness, the manifestations of mind, he would be misled in his meditation. The very root of all confusion also comes out of the mind. He who realizes the nature of that mind sees the great illumination without coming and going, observes the nature of all outer forms. He realizes that they are just visions of mind. He also sees the identity of the form and the emptiness. And I'm just explain or give a little commentary on this, not so easy to, to follow here. He begins with using, as actuality and as analogy, the very nature of the way the world reveals and shows itself. It is giving immediately a teaching on change and a teaching of, on vanishing, on dissolution, on receding back. And then he takes everyday examples, so obvious and apparent to us. He speaks of the thunder and the lightning and the clouds, the rainbow and the fog and the mist, the honey and the fruit and the crops, the flowers, the leaves, the forests, the ripples of the tide, and includes the mental world too, which keeps showing itself in the world, in the mental world, habitual thinking, clinging and desires, which also arise and also vanish and go back to where they came from, so to speak. So in that he's saying and saying just how it is in the so-called outer world, just so it is within the so-called inner world. And the outer world and the inner world, mental and material, in character, in feature, in mode of experience and event, actually are not separate from each other. And so what goes on there goes on here, what goes on here goes on there. And then he says, recedes back into. And in this receding back into, in using the outer analogy, he speaks of receding back into the ocean, the waves, the wind and the, the rainbow and the fog, receding back into the firmament, into the atmosphere, the flowers and the leaves receding back into the earth. And this manifestation receding back into. And this takes place, endless process, shall we describe it, which is taking place. And then he says, but then there are the obstacles which take place, what we describe as the obstacles. The obstacles, we say, keep coming up. They arise, these obstacles which are, which are taking place. And we tend to make a difference from the obstacles than from the flowers, from the trees, from the rainbow, from the fog, from the mist. But also, also having the same characteristic 
arising, appearing in time, persisting in time, and also fading and passing. And therefore, again, in bare nature of things, the same. And he says, and in that he said that that revelation of that is for us to see and to understand. Because if we don't understand that, we will be somewhat be misled by what meditation is. And and we might wonder, well, what does he mean? What do, what does Milarepa mean? What does it mean by being misled by? Because in a moment or two, when I go into the next paragraph, he says things to stimulate the, the, shall we say, the serious yogi's heart and mind to stimulate inquiry and looking again at what we take for, for granted. <coughs> so he says, all the confusions which take place in, and all the various obstacles which are apparent, which takes place, all come out of the mind. They all emerge out of and they all recede back into. And it's as though at times we, we, we want to make a kind of state of um, separation of the confusion, what we describe as confusion, from some other kind of mind. And, and sometimes we can get so caught up in this, it's like, like our saying to ourselves, I want the ocean, but I don't want the waves. I want the forest, but I don't want the, the, the leaves to be falling off the trees and make the, everything untidy. I want, I, want the love, I want to see and have um, lovely atmospheric condition, but don't give me the fog. And sometimes we, we in, our, in our wish, in our, in our very will, that sometimes we are going against the way things appear. We go against this kind of movement which takes, takes place because we carry this idea. And so he says, should one cling to the reality of visions, the reality of these ideas, these images? Because if we do, we will be confused, he says, in, me in meditation. Understand it? If we, if we look at our meditation and our mind and we try to make that world somehow so different from the world which is manifesting outside, that will bring confusion to our meditation. <coughs> and somehow if we can sense the way things are in the nature and look at the mind as mental nature, and remembering that many of the descriptions we give to our mind, we actually describe the nature as well. We say our mind is running around like a monkey. I'm feeling really fogged up today. It seems really clear. I feel I'm sitting on the edge. I'm like I'm down in a chasm. I'm really feeling on top of a mountain today. So many of the descriptions which we use in our everyday way of describing ourselves, we draw from the nature. And why do we draw from the nature? Because the nature of the mind and the nature of the world are inseparable. 
the shallow and the deep, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. If we're going to use that, then let's let's include and let's acknowledge our our experience and the world are not two separate events going on, but they are as they are. And then Milarepa says, he who realizes this sees the illumination which has no coming and going. He who realizes, he or she who realizes, realizes and understands what has been said knows what illumination is, which doesn't come and go. It says, well, of, there is the observing, he says, of the nature of all these outer forms, all these many expressions, which surely in the many days, hours, minutes that we have been here together, surely all the countless experiences, just, just reflect back on nearly four weeks of being in this house. I mean, how many song and dances <laughs> have you seen? How many moments has it been like this, and then it's been like this, and then it's been like this, and then it's continued like this, and then it's changed like that? How many times have we experienced the states of mind to be no different from the British climate. When are we going to realize this is the way the world shows itself? When are we going to be illuminated to what's so obvious? Melody one sees the nature of all these forms. In this illumination, emptiness or ultimate truth or ultimate nature and these forms are no different. It's like if you look at the ocean, as Milarepa gives in his description. Look at the ocean and you see the ocean. And then on the ocean, there's, there's the formation of the waves. Physical waves, you might say. Emotional waves. Thought waves. Human waves. And look out on the ocean and say, my goodness. The ocean is vast and it's full of all these waves. And there's a force with these waves. And some waves are bigger and some are smaller and some are middle size or whatever. And the force of the ocean, out of it emerges all these waves. And we call these waves human waves and creature waves and environment waves or whatever. And if we look at the, these waves and we compare and judge and this and that and the other, 
And then we say, well, the waves belong to the ocean. When the wave recedes, it recedes back into the ocean. It rises and it falls. And we ask, well, what's the nature of these waves? What's, what, when we say, what is the nature of the wave? And we might say from a conventional view, the nature of the wave is a formation, because we look at the shape, we look at the way, that, the character, the, the particular, the, the state, the content. But if we look a little bit deeper, illumination, illum an illuminated seeing, the nature of the wave is water. The nature of the ocean is water. And so Milarepa says, the form, the shape of the wave that appears, and the ultimate truth are not different from each other. Then he comes to make the point a bit further, to prod as he loves to do he says moreover wait for it <laughs> moreover to meditate is an illusory thought not to meditate is illusory too it's the same whether or not you meditate what do you make of that <laughs> I'll read it again. <laughs> to me moreover, to meditate is an illusory thought. Not to meditate is illusory too. It is the same whether or not you meditate. Okay, many ways we could explore, we could spend the whole day and night inquiring into all the implications, spiritual implications of those three lines there. You know, you could, you could burn all the spiritual textbooks of past, present and future, take those three lines and it's enough for complete unexcelled liberation. Moreover, to meditate is an illusory thought. So let's ask ourselves, let, let's, let's see. At times, may I say, many avenues, so I just explore one avenue, just as jaundiced a view as any other, I suppose. One avenue of looking at that might say, well, what occurs in the thought about meditation? What occurs for you? When the thought arises, I have to go to meditate, or now I am going to meditate, or I'm going into the meditation room, I'm going to do my walking meditation. What, what's, what's, what encourages Milarepa to say, to meditate is an illusory thought. What, what's your sense? What's the implication? What's the intimation being pointed to here, which is just to make us question 
what seems in a situation like this over a month together normal but questionable and perhaps somewhere in the communication of Milarepa here it's the thought comes in this and he and he goes into this and I'll um, take on the next paragraph or two in a moment it's like when we cherish that thought when we are somewhat conditioned by that thought in the moment we think we're not meditating I'm going to meditate therefore it's something separate from what actually is it's somewhere else and so sometimes you think I did a lot of meditation today Uh, well, today I didn't do so much meditation. And this thought does have its bearing. It, it, it actually influences us. And we can feel we're quite satisfied when we have done a lot. And we feel, well, am I wasting my time because I haven't done enough? And these are common thoughts that meditators we, ex we experience. And so sometimes, some, one person says, well, I've done so much meditation, um, it hasn't given me what I wanted, therefore I'm not going to meditate. And it is just, it's just not leading anywhere. And I think sometimes, and here we, we'll touch on this in a moment or two, sometimes we have two kind of viewpoints. One viewpoint is to meditate that something ultimately significant. And if we hold on to that viewpoint, then we're going to feel there are times when I am not meditating. I'm going to have meditation in my life, I'm going to have no meditation in my life. And we go between one and the other with our thought. And sometimes we say, well, I don't need any more meditation, I've done enough meditation, and, and to drop it altogether. And then that thought becomes the real thought. And Milarepa guards against this, and he says, not to meditate is illusory too. It's just the other side of the same dynamic. And do we, in actual terms, get caught in that between meditating and not meditating? Substantiating one and rejecting the other. Moreover, to meditate is an illusory thought. Not to meditate is illusory too. It is the same, I would say, essentially, fundamentally, whether you meditate or not. And the way that I would understand this, since it's a commentary in which he says, today I will sing to you of the ultimate truth. It's a commentary and the communication to us, which in a way is saying to us, whether you meditate or whether you don't, the nature of the ocean is going to be water. 
And, and, and in a way, that's where our interest is and our inquiry and our observation and our illumination is. Not whether we meditate or not, but whether we realize that the ocean is made of water. Not whether there is the shape of the wave is someday seems big inside and sometimes seems small and sometimes seems confusing and sometimes seem clear and calm and still. That's not the purpose of... That's not what illumination is all about, about that. It's not about the wave, it's about the nature. Not about the coming and going of the wave, the formation and how it is and the content of it is and the, and the description. The form is the suchness. Suchness is form. <clears throat> then he takes it a step further. There's no holding this guy back, is there? <laughs> Discrimination of the two, being prejudiced one way or the other, and remember we can take meditation, we can take anything. We're just taking this as, as, as it's part of the commentary, but also it's centered around our concerns and our interests. Discrimination of the two is the source of all wrong views. Or to put it another way, I would say, is the source of all muddled thought. From the ultimate viewpoint, from the ultimate nature of things, there is no view whatsoever worth cherishing or holding. No view worth taking up some position about because the view is in the realm of mental formation and the holding means that we neglect illumination. So he says that the discrimination of the two is the nature of the mind. Understand it, it's so, it's such a gem of beautiful insights. You know, it saves life a lot of hassle if you understand these things. <laughs> the he says, the nature of the mind is discriminating. The character of it is that that's what it does. You know, it, it's... <laughs> So in, in the view that we take, in the emphasis that we take, within our social situation, within the, within the context of being here, many times you have heard us as uh, teachers speak about the value and the necessity while being here for the meditations, with all the precision, the instruction, the designation of description and approach, which is part of that process. 
And you've also heard us speak equally as frequently about all of those periods which don't, as it were, formally fit in to the formal structure. And so there's been a lot of emphasis has been given about much of the rest of the day and how we relate to that part, those parts of the day and how we work with the work periods and the meal periods and the periods when we're going up and down the stairs and periods when there's been the one-to-one meetings or the small, small groups or times when one's not... any time when one isn't engaged in formal sitting and formal walking. And the communications and the reminders and the in- endorsements they have taken place with frequency with regard to both. And in some way, trying to ensure and sustain and address a balance between meditation, which frequently, I think, and understandably, has the association of the form, sitting cross-legged, or uh, walking uh, in a slow, mindful way. Very appropriate, valuable, and tools for insight. But we've also said that in a way they interface the form and the absence of the obvious form. And this interfacing of the two is a vital ingredient a vital ingredient in which, in a way, the apparent difference begins to dissolve itself. And and this interfacing, this intermarriage and towards a dissolution means that the dissolution of meditation as form and meditation as no form really is such that sitting in here and sitting in an armchair, sitting in here and talking with somebody on a train, in the dissolution, then there's really no real difference because the nature is just the same. So in in the work and in the process of doing it here, when... Hopefully, we're neither promoting one and doing it which is at the expense of the other. Because, as Miller Reaper points out, to do that, that is such that when one conceives of meditation in that way, that is an illusory thought. The wrong view or the muddled thought has come in and made a polarized situation. And yet, as he points out, the nature of the mind is to discriminate. Such a judge, it's a beautiful, just beautiful insights. In other words, to take to say they are both different from each other is to be caught in a thought and trapped and held onto it. To come out and say they are 
both exactly the same and there's absolutely no difference is to refute the nature of the mind which is to discriminate. Then Milarepa says, Beyond words is this realization. free from desire and fear. And then he says, I have no... Then he's coming towards the, the end of this, this piece that he's, that he's written. And the last piece, I think, within all the seriousness of the Dharma and of these of the teachings of liberation and the intuitive understanding of the way things are and the, the, the beauty of that illumination. He then comes to the last bit and I think it, it also conveys something beautiful, beautiful about the, the spirit of this uh, man, Melarepa. Beyond words is this realization, this illumination, free from desire and fear. He says, I have no time to sing for fun or chatting with empty words. O oh Spirit, reflect on this auspicious Dharma. Reflect on this auspicious teaching. Ask little. Don't raise so many questions. Be relaxed and sit at ease. <laughs> he says, then he finishes it coming to the end. And I think that's, again, that spirit of it, what he says there. He's speaking of that realization beyond words, beyond discriminating, free from desire and fear. He says, I have no time to sing for fun, for chatting with empty words. So if the words are going to be used and going to be applied, then at least let those words be pointing to that which is beyond the words. Let them not be just chatting words, empty words. Let them be pointing to something. And it's, oh, spirit, reflect on this auspicious dharma, this auspicious teachings. And then it's almost as an afterthought. He will ask little, don't raise so many questions. Be relaxed, sit at ease. And then in his conclusion, his, he, he says, he says, which I just think is lovely, he says, I sing as you requested. So it sounds like there was somebody asked him or whatever, whoever it may be. He says, I sing as you requested. And he ends up, these are my mad words. <laughs> so sometimes when we hear the Dharma teachings and we've been faced with, 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 with them and all the apparent paradoxes of them and the challenges of them and sometimes the confusions which seem to spill out of the teachings themselves, you know, that... It can seem like, God, these, you know, these mad words of these people from centuries ago and from recent times and contemporary times who keep putting out the same song day in and day out and encouraging others to, to sing the same song. So he says, he concludes, I sing as you requested, these are my mad words. 
be relaxed and sit at ease. Thus spoke Melarepa. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony.